investors have more money than time and individual contributors in a business have more time than money and entrepreneurs are kind of like the go-between between those two worlds, these translators between these two worlds. And one of the reasons why we raised venture capital is so that when we wanted to go fast, we could. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. If you tune in the show regularly, and thank you to those who do, you know that just a few weeks ago, we had the lovely Simon Payne on the show talking about his decision to leave Lead Pages, which is the number one landing page generation software on the web. So Simon comes on the show, shares his story, talks about how he's going to go start Convert Player, which is a piece of software that allows you to collect email addresses while you're playing your YouTube videos to your audience. So a few days after this interview goes live, I'm poking around on my computer and I get this message on Twitter from someone totally unexpected. My name is Clay Collins. I'm the co-founder of Lead Pages, along with Tracy and Simon. And that's what I do. So Clay writes me and says, hey, I'd love to come on the show. And my first thought was, sure thing. What follows today is that conversation. I know many of you have been following Clay's work online as I have for many, many years. But for those of you that haven't, just a quick refresher course. So I've been aware of Clay since the very beginning when he started out as a blogger and marketing trainer. And most recently, that was with a podcast and video show called The Marketing Show. At the time, his business was essentially selling information products and training, helping people to grow their businesses. Hello, everyone. My name is Clay Collins, and in this episode of The Marketing Show, I'm going to be giving you the world's best double opt-in confirmation page. I'm going to show you how it works. I'm going to show you why it works, and I'm going to be offering you the opportunity for us to redesign one of your landing pages. That's what you have to look forward to in this episode. Well, the story goes that Clay got frustrated with teaching people because they didn't always take his advice. So he started to think about what sort of tools he could create that would actually help people grow their businesses without having to take any training. And that's when Simon and Tracy came into the picture. Tracy, an experienced business person who could help with management, and Simon, the technical person who could build the software. You know, lead pages is what it is now. It's this behemoth (laughs) landing page generator, but it started out as a little product called Welcome Gate, which was essentially just a page that popped up in front of blogs and asked for email addresses. And we mentioned that in this show, so I wanted to make sure I mentioned that now. More recently, Clay's company, on the strengths of millions of dollars invested by tech world elite investors, bought Rob Walling's software called Drip. And we will talk a little bit about how the Drip software and team is being integrated into the Lead Pages family. Two quick terms that we're going to use quite a bit. The first is SaaS, which means software as a service. Generally speaking, SaaS or software as a service is web-based software that you use and pay for on a monthly basis. So an example that everybody knows might be like MailChimp, which is a web-based software that helps you send emails to a lot of people. You pay every month based on how many email addresses you have in the system. 
Another term that Clay uses a lot in this interview is marketing technology. And broadly speaking, what we're referring to are all the software tools in the last decade or so that have emerged to help small business owners automate and scale their marketing and sales efforts. And those could include anything from customer relationship management software like CRMs or email software like MailChimp to landing page generators like lead pages. Enough preamble. This conversation was really exciting for me. I had a great time and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You can find the notes and links to everything that we talked about in this episode at tropicalmba.com slash Clay Collins. So let's warp back to the story real quick. I get the direct message from Clay on Twitter. He says he wants to come on the show. I'm pumped. So I get on Skype and this is what goes down. Thanks for contacting me, by the way. I was sort of surprised. Dude, I really found, like I listened to your podcast and I think you guys are some of the few people that are speaking to solopreneurs and self-funded bootstrap folks and I think speak with a level of sophistication that I don't hear others speak at when they're speaking to the lifestyle design community. And so I've always been kind of attracted to that. It's this combination of like freedom and sophistication that I don't see in other places. So that's always been fun. I've always wanted to, like when I listen to your podcast, I'm like, oh, I totally want to be part of this conversation. Like we should totally talk about this as well. So that's why I reached out. Kind of expected to catch you like in a black car on the way to the airport on your iPhone. Where are you right now? Are you in an office? I'm in my bachelor pad. I essentially kept the house that I lived in before I got married and had kids. And it's like three minutes away from the house that my wife and I just bought. We just had twins. And so I work out of here. It's super cool. It's like this four-story industrial loft with like catwalks and spiral staircases and huge windows. And I just kept this place. And it's kind of where I go to work from home when I can't work from home, you know? So is today a phone day for you? Like, who else are you talking to? So I did a webinar today. I'm pretty rusty, but I did a webinar and I'm talking to you and then there's a bunch of blank space and then there's a product conversation. So yeah, today is Thursdays typically are whatever I want to do days and it's kind of for personal developments and thought leadership around where we're going as a business. I have less and less of this kind of time as we get bigger. So I try and protect my Thursdays for this. So you don't get to the bachelor pad and just watch YouTube all day long. How do you structure that time? You just sit there and you're like, I'm going to think about, I'm going to read some books or what are you up to? So Tracy said something to me back in the day that was incredibly liberating. Tracy's one of the three co-founders of Lead Pages. Tracy said to me once that she really thought the best thing for the growth of the business at our current stage was for me to stay at home and fuck around. She's like, whenever you end up fucking around a lot, we tend to grow as a business. <laughs> I don't think I'm a very interesting person. I really just like hanging out with my family and thinking about marketing technology. Those are like basically the two things in my life. And so when I'm not with my family, I'm basically thinking about marketing technology. I don't have a TV. I don't really watch it. I don't have a ton of friends. That sounds like a weird thing to say, but I just don't. Like I don't have a high need for a ton of social engagement. That's kind of like where my head naturally goes. So like a couple Thursdays ago, I just played around with like 20 email service providers (laughs) and just played around with them all day. And those are the types of things that keep me in the game that make all this fun is that kind of exploration. 
What was your last breakthrough? Do you remember coming up with something? You know, I think the last big breakthrough is kind of the larger thoughts I have around the unbundling of the marketing technology stack. Generally speaking, over time, technology stacks tend to be unbundled. So when the personal computer first came out, like Apple made the first personal computer, they made the hardware, they made the software, they made the operating system, they made the mouse, they made the printer, they made the apps that ran on top of it. They basically made everything and they vertically integrated it. But over time, every single layer of that technology stack became a billion dollar plus opportunity in and of itself and became dominated by a focused player that did nothing but focus on that slice of the technology stack. And these slices have kind of become thinner and thinner over time. So eventually, you know, Intel won on the processor, Adobe won on design apps, Windows won on the operating system, HP won on printers and, you know, peripherals of various kinds, you know, other people on sound cards and on and on and on. I'm a huge Apple fan. I'm talking to you with my MacBook right now, but there's no question who won in terms of distribution in the end. And we've seen the same thing occur with smartphones, right? That again, Apple came forth first with a vertically integrated stack. And then over time, it's like Android's winning with the operating system. Samsung is winning on the devices, Samsung, LG, whatever, HTC. And other people are winning on apps. And this whole ecosystem will be unbundled. And we've seen the same thing happen with the marketing technology stack. The winners at first were solutions like Infusionsoft and Marketo, companies like that and Eloqua that did analytics and landing pages and split testing and your payment processing and your affiliate system and your email and all of this. And what we're seeing happening isn't that people are wholesale moving away from these all-in-one vertically integrated solutions, is that they're using a smaller and smaller piece of those stacks every time. So what is sort of accelerating the unbundling or the disintegration of the marketing and sales technology stack is basically the need for growth and the need for revenue. So if you're a business and you buy one of these all-in-one systems, like most people, you might think it's sort of like whatever you have is the lesser evil. And a little SaaS app comes by that's like 29 bucks a month, 17 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month. And it promises to give you even a 5% lift in revenue or a 5% increase in deliverability or a 5% increase in conversion. Whatever it is, you need that growth. And so you're probably going to buy it. That's eroding at the all-in-one solution. You're going to use less and less of it. So we're finding that a lot of the trends that occur in every single technology stack are also happening in the field of marketing technology. And that's creating new opportunities. It seems like things go both ways too, because now you guys are starting to integrate more into what you do. Yeah, we're integrating it, but not in a monolithic way. So like Drip aggressively integrates with Leadpages competitors and Leadpages aggressively integrates with Drip competitors. So although we're offering more, it's not offered in a sort of bundled, you know, one marketing suite to rule them all. If you buy one thing, you have to buy everything kind of way. And that gives each of these products continued velocity. So a lot of times when company A buys company B, company B spends the next two years integrating with company A, and the cost of that integration is high. 
And like we didn't want that to happen with Drip and Lead Pages. So we want to ensure that Drip and Lead Pages have the best possible integrations with each other. And if any backdoors exist, you know, that we can make available to each other, like we're going to take advantage of that. But we want both Drip and Lead Pages to be best of breed point solutions that can compete in their own right. And we want people to use Drip even if they have like MailChimp or anything else they're using. And same with Drip. Like Drip should earn your right to be a customer. You shouldn't be forced into it because you're a lead pages user and vice versa. Why did you bother acquiring it? I mean, you got so many developers. Why wouldn't you just build that? I think that Rob and Derek are, they're product geniuses. It's one thing to mimic someone's technology It's another thing to know how to educate users on how to use the platform. It's another thing to know, like, not just the one thing that works, but the 12 things that don't work and why. And then there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff with an email service provider around deliverability, sending emails, open rates, and a lot of stuff around creating, you know, visual campaign builders. There are companies like Infusionsoft that have fairly unwieldy visual campaign builders that, in my view, don't hold a candle to Drips. And Drips was built by like three engineers. I don't think that it's necessarily true that if we wanted to build Drip, that we could have done it in a time frame that was meaningful for us. And I heard this quote once, it's that investors have more money than time and individual contributors in a business have more time than money and entrepreneurs are kind of like the go-between between those two worlds, these translators between these two worlds. And one of the reasons why we raised venture capital is so that when we wanted to go fast, we could. You know, it took Rob and Derek and the Drip team three years to build Drip. I think it would have taken us at least as long and it might have even cost more than the acquisition. It was a good size acquisition. I think everyone is pleased with how it went. Did you just kick an email to Rob? And you're like, hey, man, are you thinking about selling your business? Remember me? I used to blog. Yeah. You know, we were kind of analyzing the dynamics of our business. What I really like about email service providers, and nobody talks about this in regards to freemium. Just for clarity's sake, in case anyone's getting lost... Hang in there with us. The word freemium is a combination of the words free and premium. It just describes a business model in which the vast majority of your users are using your product for free. The hope is that, and the plan, is that a small percentage of those users will pay you for a premium version of the product. This is a business model that is unique to internet businesses. Now back to Clay. Products like Amazon Web Services and Stripe and like Twilio and like MailChimp are products with metered pricing. So products with metered pricing don't have any ceiling on how much someone can pay for them. So like if you have enough contacts, you could pay us a billion dollars a month for Drip. I don't know how many contacts you'd have to have, but like it's conceivable. And what metered pricing allows you to do is to really like infinitely scale your pricing in a way that's aligned with the value that you're creating. The problem with a tool like Lead Pages, which is fantastic, but there is a ceiling on how much we can charge. I think our pricing model is, is actually right. Like I don't think metered pricing is the right way to go with a landing page tool. So there's a ceiling on how much we can charge. Even if that maximum amount is really high, it's never going to compensate for the amount of money you'd lose if you did freemium. You guys have your eyes on like the enterprise. Are you frustrated by like there's like GE employees using this tool and we could potentially harvest so much more value out of customers like that? I mean, like GE is a lead pages customer. I think it's less about the enterprise 
and more about the fact that when we analyze the number of leads that we had generated through lead pages for our customers, that there's a case that we actually generated more revenue for the email service providers that were getting more contacts added to their customers' accounts through lead pages, that we were generating more revenue for those customers than we were for ourselves, right? Because those were metered products. And we wanted an opportunity to compete for that. And we wanted a product with metered pricing. And we wanted, you know, a visual workflow builder at the end of the day. Who's in your ear about this? Like, who's we? And what are you guys working towards? By we, I guess I do mean me, like I initiated that and was the one really thinking about that. What we're working towards is an unbundled marketing stack that can compete with and overtake a Marketo, an Eloqua, a HubSpot. Like those monolithic tools are encumbered, like absolutely, like their development velocity is hamstrung by the fact that when they update their UI in one part of the app, they've got to get a team of people and like retheme the whole app across the board and every single button, every single part of the thing. Like that type of crap takes a ton of time. Like the second they want to change servers for one of their apps or change their database, it just brings the whole machine to like a halt. You know, we have a marketing automation tool, we have a landing page tool. We think those are best of breed tools. We really do. You know, we think Drip can go head to head with an Infusionsoft, with a Marketo, with an Elico. We recently switched from HubSpot to Drip and we're gaining in functionality. The API is better, the timeline's better. Like Drip has a visual campaign builder, HubSpot doesn't. Like, so we can go head to head on feature sets, but they're also tools that people can take advantage of without buying into the whole thing. And so that's really what we're working towards is we want to offer everything that all these other systems can provide, but with the velocity and with the focus of point solutions. It sounds like you're good at being a CEO. That's kind of like when I was clicking around the web the last week when I knew I was going to talk to you. I was like, man, Clay seems like he's doing good. I go through this nine-month cycle where I spend three months being good at my job, and then I spend three months figuring out all the ways that I've started to suck at my job, and then I spend another three months learning how to do my job all over again. And then we grow, and then I've got three months of maybe being good at it, and then inevitably I start sucking again, and then I relearn everything all over again. And I think it's really that way for startups in general that when you're growing this fast and when you're, I mean, we just went from a one-product company to a three-product company, so now I need to think about a product portfolio for the first time. Like, that makes things more complex. So I think I'm good at being a CEO about a third of the time, 25% of the time. Hopefully that statement doesn't get me fired. (laughs) I can't technically be fired. I'd fired myself in a heartbeat if I thought someone would do a better job. What is it about you that makes you still have your job? Because a lot of people in your situation might have moved on by now and, you know, been the I get it started guy. I freaking love marketing technology. I remember the first time I started, I used AWeber and WordPress and a few plugins. And I can't ever remember feeling that empowered as a business owner. Like I had these tools in my hands and all of a sudden I could generate revenue in a way that I couldn't before. And it was so empowering. And when I look back at who my heroes are, my heroes are my grandfather who started in the citrus nursery business when he was a kid, started his citrus nursery with my grandmother when they got married and grew 600,000 trees a year until the day he died. He grew more citrus trees than any person who ever lived. 
this guy named Jim Shveda, who's like a University of Southern California, like classical music DJ. I listened to him when I was just a baby, like talking about the history of classical music. And he's so gifted. He gets into the history. And like now my children are listening to him and he's just gotten better and better. And like, you know, Steve Jobs is another hero. Maybe he was an a-hole in some respects, but I love the fact that Apple was his first tech company. Then he got kicked out, started next you know, sold that back to Apple, started Pixar, blew through $50 million, finally came out with Toy Story, went public, sold it to Disney, went back to Apple, you know, finished out his career. I mean, he spent at least four decades working on the same problem. And I think that's where real mastery comes into play. I'm not a serial entrepreneur. I just don't have that in me. So I think it's really just pure love and tenacity. You know, I think about the three things I need to be doing. Paul Graham wrote this as Fred Wilson or Paul Graham. There's three things that CEO needs to do. They need to communicate the vision. They need to help with the recruiting and they need to keep money in the bank. And I think I can do those three things. And you used to do those things in a different format. You were always an excellent communicator. I think that's why I knew about you because you would put things in ways that were meaningful to me and then I could go make something of them. But the context in which you're doing it is radically different you know, with hundreds of souls, so to speak, depending on the thing that you've created for their living. Why bother with all that? You didn't need to. You could have stayed focused on marketing problems without 70 technical people or however many you got. (laughs) I still really enjoy speaking directly to the market and I, I miss doing it. I really do. I think that's still a really valid strategy to build movements and to write manifestos and all that stuff. You know, I think at some point, some of that started to feel a little bit tired for me. And I started thinking a little bit more about legacy and what the real lovers were. And instead of working with kind of all these one-off people, you know, I really think that a better use of my time is to spend my energies inside of the business working with people that could scale that and could develop their own careers. So rather than me doing all the webinars, like, Tim does the webinars and Bob Jenkins does webinars and Jeff Winberg does live video and, you know, Daphne and Kat write blog posts. And I think they're a lot better at those things than I'll ever be. And I think we scale as a business when there are many faces to lead pages and not just mine. So I'm somewhat active here in the local startup scene. And every time someone reaches out to me for advice or mentorship or what have you, I have to weigh the ROI of helping this person get from zero to one or working inside this business and mentoring internally. And every single time I come away pretty much with the conclusion with a few exceptions that the best thing even for the Minneapolis and the Minnesota tech startup scene is for me to work in this business because when we have an IPO or whatever happens. Just for clarity, an IPO or initial public offering is the first sale of stock by a company to the public that's going to kick off hopefully hundreds of people that get liquidity out of a funding event or an IPO. It's going to create a success story. And there's going to be a whole bunch of people that kind of saw how we did it. And maybe we'll take a chance of their own with another company here. I really think it's just about like, what's the best return on investment for my time? And yeah, I still somewhat glamorize the days when, you know, I could spend three days writing a blog post. I can't do that anymore but I think I'm working on the right things. Can you walk me through like a day you had earlier this week? Can you bring me into the office? Like, what did you do all day long? I'm that guy, right? Spending three days on a blog post. And I wonder about, could this be in my future? Take me back to when you guys had the idea. 
was it a design like I know that I'm ready to take this thing to the next level or was it like, holy shit, this thing's going to the next level. I'm just going to grab on tight. Something you'll find, I think, or something I found is that the more successful a startup founder becomes, it tends to be like the less articulate they are (laughs) on podcasts and interviews and while giving presentations. And it's because their world is just so screwed at that point. Like they're in meetings all day and they're like staying up late answering emails, you know, and it's almost like presenting in front of 500 people. I don't want to discount it, but it's more of an afterthought than it used to be because the big lever is what they're engaging in every single day. And they're just not as good at it. Like I probably suck. You know, I'm probably nowhere near at doing interviews as I used to be. And I'm okay with that. But, you know, I used to listen to Mixergy podcasts and hear these kind of inarticulate CEOs who now I understand were just like insanely sleep deprived and trying to solve five large problems simultaneously. And I would listen to them and be like, we're better at marketing than them. We can build a better product than them. There's no reason why they should be doing, you know, whatever they were doing in terms of monthly recurring revenue. And we're not, I want that. I hunger for that. I want immense scale. Like Elon Musk is, you know, started PayPal and now he's putting rockets on the moon. I want to freaking put rockets on the, I want to launch rockets into space or whatever the thing is, you know? And so I used to just hear that. And I think I just like would puff up my chest and, or get a chip on my shoulder and be like, WTF, like we are entitled to this also. And so I think there was some of that, and also, I think that when we started Lead Pages, I think we had this real recognition that there was a rocket ship here and that you might take 10 goes at this in a lifetime and maybe only one if you're lucky, maybe two if you're really, really lucky will pan out. So we needed to focus on this critical window of opportunity, create as much growth as we can. And we eventually raised funding so that we could perpetuate some of that without having to rely on luck, you know, hopefully into multiple decades. A few weeks ago, we told half the story. Can you tell me about listening to Simon on the show? It was nothing but love. Simon's like really special. And I remember those days when we just started up very fondly. So I listened to it and had a nice trip down memory lane. I really appreciated you documenting that. Let's talk about the germ, if you don't mind. There was this thing that John Mayer said one time that someone said to him, and at first he thought it was really insulting. And then he was like, that was the biggest compliment. It was something like, your songs are sort of like, duh. Like they were the obvious song to write. Like, oh yeah, daughters needed to exist, you know? (laughs) In some ways, like lead pages, when it came along, it was like, oh yeah, duh. Like we should have had that. So why didn't we have it? Yeah, It's a really great question. I think that when Lead Pages came out, we were in this really interesting period of internet marketing and digital marketing where there was at the top, like upmarket, there were tools like uh, probably just Unbounce and then tools that were kind of crappy and came with like Pardot and Eloqua and ExactTarget and all these, you know, huge behemoth enterprise things that are unwieldy. So like there was this top of the market thing and those tools really didn't work for people like me. And then at the bottom of the market, there are a bunch of WordPress plugins. And as much as I respect those types of tools, I firmly believe that I'm going to probably piss off a bunch of people here, but like, I don't think you can build a quality WordPress plugin and it's not your fault. So upstream, there was all this stuff that really didn't make sense for small businesses and solopreneurs. 
and then down market, there were a bunch of WordPress plugins sold by marketing gurus that didn't know how to build software. So we came in and we said, all right, we're going to have a real tech team and a real technical co-founder, and we're going to build a solid SaaS product that's meant for small businesses and solopreneurs and digital marketers that understood the value of conversion marketing. And that was just like a blue ocean opportunity for us. And I don't think anyone expected that, you know, we'd get like 15,000 customers our first year and, you know, now we have 44,000 customers. Like, I don't think anyone expected that it would happen that quickly. But I do think that that was a unique moment in history and it's allowed us to essentially have the foothold that we have now. How can people identify those moments? Like, what's happening now? Like everything else, there's moments of opportunity and then those moments pass by it's kind of like tax loopholes (laughs) like people exploit the hell out of them and then they close them up right and then something else opens up and people go there i think it is going to become harder and harder to compete in the software space just like it's become harder and harder to compete with info products like any place where there's opportunity attracts competitors and you know as those get more competitive like the profits can get competed away and then you're left with the real players right that know how to roll up their sleeves and play the long game that have access to capital or affiliate networks or whatever unfair advantage they're bringing to the table so i do think that you know in the space of like saas products for small businesses and solopreneurs and entrepreneurs, yeah, I think there's fewer opportunities and that that trend is going to continue until someone figures out a way to disrupt the whole thing and then we'll start all over, right? Well, tell me about where we're at now because like, I sort of feel like there's just more content than there's ears and eyeballs nowadays. You've already given your email address to everybody and everybody's on Facebook all the time and nobody's on Twitter. It kind of feels like peak content a little bit. Yeah, Is that true? Is there still space for people to come and start podcasts and start blogging and stuff? Or should we all just hang out on Facebook all day long? I think there's always going to be room for highly differentiated content. So content is doing better than ever when it comes to television right now. It's just that the dollar amount required to make amazing content is going through the roof. So it it costs more to make really good video. It costs more to make really good ebooks you can't just sort of take a blog post put it in pdf form hire someone on fiverr to create a cover and put it out like we have a three-person video team at lead pages that's full-time and they have their studio we invest heavily in video and you know we still have a lot of room to grow same with podcasts same with content so yeah you know i think it used to be the case that you could just hire five j school students for you know 30 grand a year and churn out SEO-optimized blog post after SEO-optimized blog post, and that would work. So I don't think any of this has stopped working. I think it's just that the stakes have gotten higher and the amount needed to create differentiated content, it's just gotten higher. That's it. You did this amazing thing, which is you brought on Tim Page to be a full-time podcaster, I think, when you first hired him. Yep. What the hell were you thinking? Yeah, so we were looking at ways that SaaS businesses scaled. And we saw that what was happening, the proven playbook for making that work was flawed. So if you looked at HubSpot and Infusionsoft, like HubSpot has a customer acquisition cost of the last I checked, like $11,000. And my guess is it's probably gone up since then. 
it's going to the sales team and the marketing team. And like, that's just to cover customer acquisition. So they've got like at least a two-year payback period, or at least the last I checked, they had a two-year payback period. So someone needs to be a customer for like a couple years for them to just break even on the customer acquisition cost. Now, because their churn's low, they are going to make profit, but it happens after a couple of years. So they end up in this situation where the more successful they are, the more in debt they have to go because they have this two-year cohort (laughs) that is maturing. And if each cohort is bigger than the previous one, then you're just going to go further and further into debt to fund all this customer acquisition cost. And we knew that wasn't possible for us. One, that wasn't our customer segment. It wasn't our persona. And two, like we were in the Midwest, we're in Minnesota. Like we didn't know that we'd even be able to raise venture capital. So we had to find one-to-many sales channels. And content marketing was the way to do that, in particular webinars. So the first thing that worked were these videos in front of my staircase where I'm just giving away landing page templates. And those drove sales. So I was like, bam, one thing works. Instead of hiring a salesperson who, you know, can generate whatever in annual recurring revenue a month, I'm going to try and hire a content marketer that can generate as much for us in business as an equivalent Salesforce sales rep would, except their content is going to be evergreen and it's going to work for us like in perpetuity if we do it right. So the goal was that instead of scaling a sales team, we'd scale a content marketing team, but that they'd have individual metrics and goals that we tracked like we would a sales team. So this was really a customer acquisition team. It's like a one-to-many sales team or a one-to-many customer acquisition team that used content marketing. So the first person that we hired for the content team was Jeff Winberg, who started making our videos. Kat was next. So Kat was doing like promotions. Tim was doing a podcast and started doing webinars. And Jeff was making the videos. So like webinars was every time I passed something off to someone else, they took it over and then I would create a new content marketing channel that hopefully if it worked, we could hire someone else to scale that. So then the affiliate thing worked, hired someone to do that full time. So I don't know that we were doing anything special. I don't know that I was doing anything that anyone else didn't know worked. But what I was doing differently is the second we had created a system around it, I would hire someone to scale that system and then I'd go and find someone else. And then I think we measured the whole thing and operated everything like we would a sales team, right? Like there were not exactly quotas, but people knew their numbers. They could track them over time. They knew what was moving the dial and what wasn't. What are your numbers now? Like what are you watching? It's basically just um, monthly new MRR. That's redundant. It's new MRR on a monthly basis. <laughs> <laughs> so monthly recurring revenue increases. And you guys got goals? Like, is it all driving towards the IPO now? And why bother driving towards something like that? Like, what are the, I guess, the values in place that, in terms of ambition that move it forward? I think it's really a hunger for impact and a belief that things can be done differently. Like, we really believe in open. And that's part of why we created Center is because we believe in open versus closed. We believe in highly integrated point solutions doing a better job than crappy all-in-one monolithic applications that do a few things well, but are slow. I think we have a worldview. We think it's better and it's working for us right now. So I really see that driving us. It's so amazing because when you go back to the beginning and you look at something like Welcome Gate, it's like a great idea. And I think I'm maybe kind of like lost touch with your story, what was going on. And now all of a sudden you've got a view about the future of software and marketing. 
I would have never thought of it like that. You know, I would have thought, well, that's just a thing that gets email addresses. I've been bootstrapped longer than we've been venture backed. And I'm in the Midwest. I was homeschooled. I'm not very good at talking to finance people or making presentations. It was never like we were going to come right out of the gate with like an Uber or a Facebook. So I think we always knew that we'd have to ladder up that we'd have to start off with something that was doable and approachable and that if we did it well, then that would buy us a ticket to the next rung up the ladder. And we've been doing that since the beginning. So, you know, I started out blogging, doing affiliate sales, then sold like Project Mojave, then the Interactive Offer. Those were info products that gave me enough knowledge of marketing so that we could afford to hire Simon Simon created WelcomeGate, which was our first sort of free WordPress plugin. That gave us enough confidence that we could come out with Lead Player, which was a WordPress plugin. And we sold that, got that to the point where with almost no marketing was doing 50 grand a month. That gave us enough confidence to attempt Lead Pages. Lead Pages has been, you know, the success that it is. That gave us 38 million in venture capital that we raised before we had spent any money at all of VC money. So that got us 38 million. That opened us up to being able to afford an acquisition like Drip and to do things that potentially are ahead of their time, like Center. And we hope that we can do these things well and that will, you know, a ticket to the next rung of the ladder. And that's how we've approached everything. And I don't think that's exactly unique. Like Netflix has done this pretty well. Netflix used freely available DVDs that you could buy at like, Walmart or whatever, but leveraged a distribution advantage and leveraged just a a new worldview to get really good at just being a logistics company. And that's all they were. They were just like, they were just a logistics company, like nothing fancier than a logistics company. Maybe they had some matching algorithm or whatever, but they were basically a logistics company. And they were like, well, we're distributing these offline and we've done well enough at this that we have a shot, you know, because of the resources we have at doing online distribution. So they did online distribution, but the thing they ran into there was really these content licensing. It's like a rights matrix they get. And it's like they have to pay more every year and it can get renegotiated. And it's just, it sucks to have to do that. But they got good enough at online distribution that they bought themselves a ticket to the next rung of the ladder, which was, you know, creating their own content. And I can imagine the experience of people in these companies being like, wait, I thought we were a logistics company. Now we're like this online streaming content provider. And like, oh, now we're like a movie studio. Like, but they've been focused on kind of the same thing the whole time. And those are the companies that really inspire me. So your spidey sense about the next ladder rung for you is that to operate as a public company or? Yeah. So it's really about being the center of the unbundled marketing stack. So if you go to center.io, that's one of our three products is center. There's an article on center.io called the center thesis. And that's really what I believe in a nutshell. Like that is the next rung of the ladder for us is being the hub of the unbundled marketing stack, being able to run coordinated marketing campaigns across disparate and unbundled marketing point solutions and doing that effectively and doing that as well or better as you can do it in a monolithic app is the next rung of the ladder for us. There's a standard ladder that says you should have gone to California (laughs) and you have a background there. So why are you going to stick in Minnesota? It's starting to get cold, man. 
you know, I've always been the happiest in Minnesota. I was born and raised in Southern California, near LA. I went to graduate school out here and I just never left. And I've moved back here three times and every single time I could have lived anywhere. Two out of those three times, I had a five-hour work week and I could have gone anywhere. And this is my favorite place to live. Like we've got great parks. It's a really clean city. It's very Scandinavian in a lot of ways. Like there's a lot of stuff here that just like, it's like, of course it should work that way. Of course I should walk down the street and there should be a bunch of publicly available bikes and I should just be able to put my card in here and like rent one and go down the street. And of course- 100% of the land around a lake and around a body of water should be parkland and nobody should own that. It's like Minnesota's the lowest child poverty rate and the lowest poverty rate in the country. It has the highest percentage of like voter turnout in the last few presidential elect. Like there's just a lot of really great things about being here. And we also have a lot of Fortune 500 companies. So like Target is based out of here. Medtronic is based out of here. Best Buy is based out of here. General Mills. Like there's this really nice ratio of Fortune 500 companies to startups. So there's a lot of Fortune 500 companies here kicking off like really great software developers. There's a lot of universities here and there's not a lot of startups competing for the kind of person that would be interested in doing the kind of thing we do. So we can come in and say, we're going to be just as competitive as where you were before and we're going to have benefits and you're going to get stock options and there's swings in the office and there's like very little bureaucracy. You like, we're actually going to deploy your code to production on day one, you know, and on and on and on. So I think there's a bit of arbitrage there in that sense. I also think there's some like VC arbitrage, like we raised at Silicon Valley valuations and we get to spend that money in the Midwest. So our costs are potentially a half to a fourth of running a company in the Bay Area, but we raised at those kinds of valuations when we raised venture capital. I'm going to barge in here. I wanted to say something about venture capital because it's something that we touch on often in this show. And sometimes we have a bone to pick with the role that venture capital plays in the entrepreneurial community. I think this is generally because we see engaging with venture capitals as giving over control of our destinies to individuals whose primary concerns aren't aligned with ours. That's why most of us here in TMBA land got into business in the first place, right? We should be able to control your own destiny and live the life we want, build the business we want, and it might not be to maximize the cash return for some other person. But actually, Clay surprised me with his perspective and takes a much more pragmatic approach. So George Carlin has this funny quote. He goes on this rant about how there's this cult of childhood in the world right now. We like idolize children as these like cult objects. And he says something that perhaps is insightful. He's like, kids are like everyone else. A few winners, a whole lot of losers. You know, if I were George Carlin, I might say the same thing about VCs. VCs are like everyone else. A few winners, a whole lot of losers. And I think people have really vilified venture capitalists. It's kind of like when people are like, oh, venture capital, is it good or bad? You can say the same thing about marriage. Like marriage, is it good or bad? Like over half of them end in divorce. And I think at the end of the day, the job of a CEO, like here's the deal. As a CEO, you need to do good deals and you need to not do shitty deals. You need to do good deals and you need to not do shitty deals. And a venture capital deal is like any other deal. You hire attorneys, you write the agreement you want, you negotiate the terms, you try and get something that's good for both parties and create a win-win situation. And I think that if you're desperate and 
you need money and you want to do a deal with the devil, you might be able to get the devil to do a deal with you and then it might go to crap and then you'll like blame them. But you did a bad deal because you were in a weak spot as a business. And I don't think it's this bifurcated issue. I think VC deals are just deals and do good ones, don't do bad ones. That's it. I hope you can come back on the show when you get to the next stage. As I imagine you now like in your Thursday man space what a horrible waste of time on your part. Dude, I think you guys have one of the best podcasts out there. I really think that you guys get it and you package it in a way that is accessible to me when I was in my 20s. Like, what got me into all of this was I read The Four Hour Work Week. And I kind of laughed at that book now. I don't give a crap about The Four Hour Work Week. Like, my version of lifestyle design is having the privilege to work 16 hours a day on the stuff that I love to do, working in my zone of genius, unencumbered by a bunch of crap, and having the resources to hire amazing people to tack huge problems. So, that book is kind of a joke, and I didn't have access to your podcast. So, to be someone who hungered for some of the things that people really do hunger for when they're wanting a different life. And then to have access to the kinds of insights and sophistication and just sort of the level that you guys are thinking at, like that's really a dream come true. So I think you guys bridge a bunch of different worlds in a really cool way. I'm really glad that you exist. And I think you're one of the most insightful interviewers that I've ever been interviewed by. So I really enjoyed this. How cool was that? I'm so pumped that Clay reached out to us, said he liked the show, was willing to come by and share his story. And I really hope that this is just episode one of the Clay Collins experience because there's just so much more here and I'm fascinated. We'd like to know what you think. You can check out this episode's show notes at tropicalmba.com slash Clay Collins. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.